New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Over 400 years ago, William Shakespeare wrote in his play, As You Like It, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women are merely players. What a wonderful metaphor the stage is. But what did the bard really mean? That all of life is a play, a drama? Or that it is playful, fun, and joyous, or all of the above? The dictionary says to play means to engage in activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than a serious or practical purpose. But does that mean that play doesn't mean anything? Dr. Stuart Brown is a medical doctor, psychiatrist, clinical researcher, and one of the forerunners in the exhilarating study of play. He believes that the concept of play is simultaneously complex and simple, what some scholars are now calling simplexity. And moreover, it plays a vital role in human evolution, psychology, sociology, sports, business, relationships, and even politics. Play, he writes, is not only important, but it's one of the triggers that helped sculpt the minds of early human beings. Dr. Brown is the author of Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul, a New York Times best-selling book, and founder of the National Institute for Play in Carmel, California. In 1987, he was the producer of the classic documentary film, The Hero's Journey, The Life and Work of Joseph Campbell. Recently, he was executive producer and originator of the three-part PBS series, The Promise of Play. Join us for the next hour as we discover how play can help bring more joy, creativity, intimacy, and innovation to our lives with our guest, Stuart Brown. I'm Phil Cousineau. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Stuart, wonderful to see you. It's a delight to be here with my good friend, Phil. <laughs> In a world that tends to be quite serious, why do we play? It's a wonderful question. I don't know that anyone fully understands why we play, but I think if you walk outside and see two puppies, you'll know that as they engage each other, there's something really primal operative in their lives. And if you go to a beach and see kids digging in the sand, there's something very pure and primal about that activity. So that play is something that's deeply embedded in our natures. And I think in the course of this hour, we'll have a chance to take a good look at just what it is and why it's important. 
In your wonderful book, Play, I was grateful to see that you resisted the urge to define it, but you describe it beautifully. Can you give us some of the values and the qualities of play? Well, of course, I can, I can uh, become like an engineer and get linear and, and say, well, here it is. It's done for its own sake. It's fun. And these are all components of play. But since play is such a deep process and has been around nature for hundreds of millions of years, it really originates from pre-verbal sources. So that to outline it verbally is to, not, I think, not give it full justice. Nonetheless, most of us like to know sort of, well, well what is it anyhow? So I think that it's worth a little definitional uh, boundarying, even though it doesn't do full justice to play because play's an experience. And an experience is, you know, if you smell paint, that's an experience, but it's kind of hard to describe the exact smell of paint because that comes from a source in the brain that's also preverbal, our capacity to smell. So let's take a, you know, a roundabout look at play. And I said something earlier that it's voluntary. It's done for its own sake. It takes one out of a sense of time. So the time's arrow no longer is uh, dominating. The outcome of the play is less important than the experience itself. So these are just a few of the ways of beginning to get a, a sense of it. And yet, when we are in a state of play, most of us know what that is. So to think of play as a state of being or a state of action, separate from all others, is my uh, sense of how we should approach the subject because being in the zone, you're in a state in, in sports. Uh, reading a novel and being caught up in fantasy, as you read that novel, you're in a state. Those are both examples of playfulness. You've played all your life. You played ball when you were younger. But what compelled you to begin to study play in depth? Well, I had a rare opportunity. I had just finished my second residency which was in psychiatry, when a young man walked up to the top of the Texas University Tower with an armory, killed 14 people. He had killed his wife and his mother earlier. His name was Charles Whitman. And because I was, uh, had done some work in violence in the course of my residency, my boss and the governor of uh, Texas, who was then John Connolly, who had been in the, wounded in the Kennedy assassination, decided that they needed to know why Charles Whitman had done what he did. He was killed in crossfire on the top of the tower. And I thought to myself when I was approached to try and figure out why, what a dead man did uh, to that many people that we would never really discern what motivated him. But we had unlimited funds, and so we spent a good deal of time, called in experts from all over the world, uh, did 35,000 brain sections on, the, on Whitman's brain. Uh, and at the end of a very exhaustive and intensive study by commission, one of the major findings was, and agreed upon by hard scientists and social scientists and FBI people that were part of the, the team, one of the conclusions was that his father's systematic suppression 
of play behavior from day one meant that he did not develop a repertoire to deal with his hostile and aggressive impulses. And that this linkage between play deprivation and his homicidal activity was significant enough to be included in our final, final study. So that naturally caught my attention as a young psychiatrist as, you know, what in the world is going on here with this play stuff? I'd had play, th- I'd been through a rotation in play therapy in my training, so I knew it was significant therapeutically, but I didn't really understand it. And this same boss then said, well, Stu, you've got to go to Huntsville to, and study as many homicidal males as you can. So the next year or so, we took a team into the Texas State Prison and did systematic reviews of uh, homicidal males whose only act of violence was homicide. And uh, lo and behold, their play histories were increased incredibly deprivational, and they were matched man by man to a, a very large control group whose play histories were very different. So we found that when it, with, if you were to look at Homicide and Whitman, that there seemed to be something here in play deprivation. So that's what caught my, it's a long-winded answer, but that's what caught my professional attention back in the late 60s, uh, that there's something really significant going on here in, uh, in a developmental sense that when you misplay, you're missing something very significant that uh, allows you to become a violent, uh, antisocial male, at least. We didn't study females. This was all males. How did you further extrapolate from that, that everyone needs to play because the suppression of play suppresses the life instinct, compassion, the ability to connect with people? Well, I I didn't make all those connections (laughs) all at once. What I did was begin through the rest of my clinical career to take as detailed a personal play history as possible from all all of my patients. And then, uh, since you and I have had the opportunity to do some creative work, I did a uh, series, helped to co-produce a series in Great Britain called The Soul of the Universe. And in that series, there were a number of Nobel laureates and highly uh, successful professionals. So in the course of that production, I was able to do a play review of these highly successful, uh, often driven people, and their play was their work. They, you didn't separate it. There was no such thing as play deprivation among these highly successful people. So as one begins to get an array of data from Nobel laureates on one end, homicidal people on the other, and the rest of us in between, you begin to get a sense of the contributions that play makes to a life. And you also begin to get a sense of what's missing when it's, it is missing in a life. Now, certainly not every play deprivational adult or child is going to be a homicidal maniac, obviously, but there are consequences that are seen in a life when it is play-deprived, and those consequences are serious. For example? Rigidity in thinking, uh, compulsiveness, depression, vulnerability to addictions, escapist behavior. Sounds like the American way, doesn't it? I marveled at one of your descriptions of the opposite of play is depression. 
That's Brian Sutton Smith, who's a play researcher's. Uh, that's that's his mantra. The opposite of play is not work; it's depression. Oh. You know, I love word origin, so of, of course I had to look up the origin of the word play, and it goes back to an old Dutch word, plagen, that originally meant exercise, but also a leap for joy. Does that fit? I love that because one of the fundamentals of play is the leap upward. If if you see uh, an infant beginning to climb and walk out of a crib, there's a longing to go upward. And, you know, I think, you know, to extrapolate this from my bias, why'd we go to the moon? Why is there a space station? This this urge to leap upward is and to defy gravity, to take oneself out of some of these laws that otherwise govern us is part of what play's all about. Is there a spiritual component to play? Well, of course. You know, I'll personalize this, but I was on the beach at Santa Cruz a week ago with my grandson. And he and two of his buddies, it happened to be one of those really warm uh, California drought days and before the rains come. And here were these three little boys playing. And my sense was, if I've ever seen any divinity emergent in pure form, it was these three boys. My guest is Stuart Brown, author of Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. By the way, he spells his name S-T-U-A-R-T, Brown, P-R-O-W-N. If you'd like more information on the work of Stuart Brown, you may go to his website, nifplay.org. That's the National Institute for Play, nifplay.org. Or you can go through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Phil Cousineau. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Stuart Brown. He's the author of Play, a book about the invigoration of the mind, body, and the soul. Stuart, I found it very touching that you began your book with an anecdote about your dog. Can you tell me why? Well, how many of you are dog owners? I mean, any, any devoted dog owner knows that if they are having a bad day, if you toss a ball to the dog and he starts wagging his tail and chasing around the room... It's impossible to have a bad day. So, you know, dogs are wonderful. As a matter of fact, coming to this broadcast, I brought my dog in the car. So uh, I think our union with deep play goes back into our evolutionary past. And one of the things that's pure 
is dog play, cat play, animal play. So it's, uh, to me, to start a book with a dog that absolutely transfixed an entire array of relatives, birds, horses, and other dogs was a good place to start. Can you tell me about the encounter that you had with the polar bear and the wolf up in the Arctic? Well, unfortunately, Phil, that was a National Geographic encounter that I learned about. I was not myself at Churchill, north of Churchill, Manitoba. But of course, I have spoken in depth with the owner of the sled dog and have had a good deal of experience since with other animals that were akin to the experience. So I suppose I can relate the polar bear sled dog story, which is as follows. A German photographer by the name of Norbert Rossing was assigned to do a special uh, photographic essay on a special breed of sled dogs north of Churchill, Manitoba. So they were all lined up, 32 of them, on, tethered to uh, the snow and the tundra right before the ice came in in Hudson Bay. And as they set up their cameras, from stage left came a wild male polar bear, 1,200 pounds, hungry, headed for the closest sled dog, a female sled dog. Well, the sled dog didn't know that she was about to be lunch. So she went into a play bow, wagged her tail, and the predator bear who was stalking down on this sled dog suddenly shifted his demeanor, started to dance, stood up over the sled dog, looked down at her, she looked up at him, and they began a rough-and-tumble ballet that was that we then put in our National Geographic article called Animals at Play. And it was an incredible uh, experience to see that. Well, after I published this article with the sled dog and the polar bear, you know, prominently displayed, I got a bunch of letters from people who had not identical but very similar observations. Uh, Game warden in Alaska seeing wolf pups playing with grizzlies at the base of a glacier, uh, identical to some of the stuff that was seen off Churchill, Manitoba. So that was a marvelous affirmation to me of the power of play signals to override carnivorous, predatory behavior that really has some linkages to conflict resolution in human beings. You, you've also described how subtle the signals are of play behavior, how close play comes up to the edge of violence. What can we extrapolate for that with human behavior? That play and violence are kind of cousins? Well, if we go back to the study of murderers and to some of the other studies that I've done systematically about the learning of play languages and play signals, and you begin to see how kids, be, kids start out having parallel play. They aren't really signaling much, but they're getting comfortable with each other so that they have a sense of each other's presence. And then what occurs naturally is chasing, wrestling, screaming, squealing, punching, uh, rough-and-tumble play, which is worldwide, transcultural, 
and which is how we learn to experience empathy and how we learn the nuances of socialization. And throughout the rough and tumble play, there are multiple signals. They're facial, they're gestural, they're body, so that there is a whole array of languages. They're vocal. And in animals, they're even olfactory. And we've found that sea lions, for example, have an olfactory excretion which signals play. So there are these, these incredible languages which signal play as a separate state of being from all others, which is kind of where I started with the definition. In ancient Greece, they believed that both drama and athletics were a form of learning how to navigate the world through mimetic display. You watch how someone acts on a stage, you watch how athletes perform, and it gives you a modeling behavior. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes great sense. The, the younger kids, most uh, the history of play behavior has been in mixed age groups. Unfortunately, we now most of the time put our kids together in the same age and the same grade and so on. But the history of play is that there is rough and tumble play that's seen in uh, varied age groups. Well, you watch a little kid observing an older kid at play, and the mimesis you talk about is a fundamental part of learning what it is to play. None of the murderers I studied in Texas engaged in normal rough and tumble play. None. There were 26 of them that we had examined. Does that mean they don't know the difference? It means they didn't learn the languages. To me, it's as complex and as significant to learn play languages as it is to learn your ABCs and learn how to read, which takes some time and takes some nuance. So yes, it's, uh, they didn't learn the languages. And so when they were then placed in a situation such as a playground, an open playground, and they didn't have the skills, let's say they started in first grade and they'd never had rough and tumble play, they either were isolates or bullies. They didn't seem to have the capacity to integrate and craft themselves into a social norm. So we're not talking about play is fundamental to human well-being. Is there a relationship with beauty? I remember an afternoon that we had with Jane Goodall years ago where she told that literally hair-raising story about witnessing the chimps doing somersaults in front of a waterfall in Africa as a rainbow came in, in front of the water. And that notion that they were leaping for joy, like in the origin of the word, says that they were having joy in the body, but maybe they were also recognizing something in the world, something that's beautiful. Oh, you remind me of that story because the first time Jane told that to me, it started with a clap of thunder and lightning and a, a heavy rainstorm. And she was miserable watching these chimpanzees at the base of Gombe Stream. And boom, here comes a, a, a... And all of a sudden, the chimpanzees leapt up, raised their arms toward the the rainbow and the thunder. And she has said to me, this is why she believes in God, the first moment of awe and wonder in our heritage. Great story. Well, that's pure Joe Campbell, isn't it? Remember, he was looking for the origins of religious thought, mythological thought, art, and the opening in the heart of awe and wonder. Is that the great gift of play? 
It's one of them. One of them. <laughs> Glad we got an hour. We can talk about some more. What do you mean when you said that play helped sculpt and carve and shape the early brain of our ancestors? Well, there's an anthropologist who's taught me a lot. His name is Peter Gray. And he has uh, assembled the best literature in the world of about 150 hunter-gatherer tribes, a few of whom are left uh, essentially untouched. And what he says is that the heritage, which let's say pre-homo sapiens perhaps, but at least when we were involved in hunter-gatherer tribal units, that those heritages, as best we can discern, were characterized by a significant amount of free play and that the work-play separation didn't exist, that there was freedom within those early pre-chieftain tribal units to leave and go to another tribe without consequence so that there was uh, freedom and that the uh, dealing with the gods was joyful capricious, not ide ideologued, not uh, uh, according to some priest. And these are his conclusions, which I think are really very solid. He's a, a wonderful scholar. So my sense is that, from his work, is that our human heritage is deeply embedded in playfulness, which leads to not only empathy, as I've described, but cooperation, sharing, altruism, which were for a million years how we as a tribal, tribal uh, creatures survived. And I still think that's how ultimately in communities we are designed to survive. What's the role of neoteny in this? Oh, good word, neoteny. Uh, Tom Robbins has a book, Neoteny, Neoteny, Neoteny. <laughs> but neoteny means to stretch in the Latin. What it, what it involves is really the maintenance of immaturity into old age. And that isn't bad immaturity. It's flexibility. It is youthfulness. It is plasticity of the brain. And it is who we are biologically as a primate species. You know, if you go from Homo habilis to Homo erectus to uh, Australopithecus sediba and watch the variety of uh, pre-hominid uh, Homo sapiens come into uh, view, what you will see is that we are more immature in our biology than they were. And that immaturity is, uh, uh, the hallmark of that immaturity is playfulness. Neoteny slash playfulness. That's who we are. That's why we've got laws uh, about uh, adolescence drinking and a few other important laws because, you know, we're an unstable group without some boundaries. Isn't that curious, then, that sometimes people will charge us with being immature if we're too playful? Nonsense is not honored. <laughs> That's why we need the holy fool. <laughs> well put. <laughs> yes. You keep making this distinction between play and then free play. Does that mean we're limited with games? Oh, no. I mean, I think the this is part of the mosaic of play is that forms of play that are collective uh, require boundaries and require rules. And, uh, you know, for example, I'm a tennis player. 
if I hit the ball out and, and I don't want it to be counted, tough, you know, hit their rules. Thank you. My guest is Stuart Brown, author of Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. By the way, he spells his name Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. If you'd like more information on the work of Stuart Brown, you may go to his website, nifplay.org. That's nif.org, the National Institute for Play. Or you can reach him through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Phil Cousineau. You're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Stuart Brown, author of Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. Stuart, you use the word concern quite often in your lectures, your talks, and in your book. Are you concerned about the state of play in the world today? I'm deeply concerned about the state of play in the world t today. Partly because I've had the experience of seeing what deprivation of play does to the human spirit and to the human being, worse when it's missed early, but consequences throughout life. And what I see in, in uh, much of society is a drivenness that may be hedonic or escapist, but is not what I would say authentic, is, is the nature of authentic play. If someone, for example, an adolescent is involved in video games, there may be real joyfulness and playfulness in that activity. But when that activity becomes driven, and when interruption of that activity is difficult, and when there is a cessation of physical activity or social activity as a result of that, quote, addiction, then that no longer is play. Play is, can be interrupted. It's voluntary. It's done for its own sake. It's joyful, but it's not driven. And I think the, uh, the many of the educational policies we see in uh, pre-kindergarten and in kindergarten and in teaching to the test and in memorization are... Uh, hijacking the natural urge of the child through their own curiosity and through their own talent pool to explore the world. And play is the means of engagement by which most kids naturally explore the world using their own talents. So if they are scripted, whether it's a video game or a teacher or a parent that's well-meaning, and their own play nature is interdicted by those scripted activities, the emergence of the full self is also constricted. So these are really serious uh, concerns that I have, that when play is not experienced within its, the natural history and its natural boundaries, to me it's like sleep deprivation, bad nutrition, there is play hygiene which is a necessity for human well-being. 
And since I mentioned in the previous section, neoteny, which is the immaturity that lasts for a lifetime, immaturity in not a a derogatory sense, but in a biologically necessary sense, when we don't play as adults, we also have consequences of that deprivation. So yes, I'm concerned. Let's say you have the opportunity to spend some time with a teenager who is addicted to games in the way that you are saying, the soul-sapping relationship with gaming and play. What do you do? How do you reach someone who is addicted and doesn't know the distinction between bad and good play? It's a tough, it's a tough go because there's a huge amount of peer pressure and commercialization and other uh, societal pressures to keep that adolescent, hypothetical adolescent, engaged in what will be uh, money-making activity for lots of industries. Uh, but within my own family, for example, I've got a, a bunch of grandkids, and one of them was particularly fond of video games. And when he visited me in Carmel Valley, I dragged him out of his video game seance on a hike, and he moaned, and he groaned, and he complained, and it was hot, and why are we here, Grandpa? And I made him keep moving. And then a hawk flew over with a snake dangling from its talons, squirming around, and he looked up, he says, cool. (laughs) And, you know, that's part of it. I think if you expose kids, any of us, to the power of nature and to the essence of what it is to be physically active, there is a joyfulness involved and a curiosity involved in that that runs deep. But there's no easy answer to your question. I remember the legendary coach, John Wooden at UCLA, who wrote that he had one piece of advice for the guys who would play on his team, move, move, move. In this context, does that make sense that someone who was addicted has stopped moving and they need to get out and move again? Yeah, I think the the sedentarism and two-dimensional screen activity, and there's lots of brain imaging data on this, two-dimensional brain activity doesn't stimulate a part of the brain called the cerebellum. The cerebellum, we now know, hooks into the frontal lobe. When you move, the cerebellum is stimulated. It stimulates things in the frontal lobe that make new connections that you don't make unless you're moving. Also, my uh, one of my mentors in play, the animal play uh, specialist by the name of Bob Fagan, who's a grizzly bear play expert in Alaska, has a statement. He said, movement fills an empty heart, which I thought was beautiful. And he, he originated that. Wonderful. Can you tell us the the story of your time with Fagan and the Bears when you asked him what they were really doing? Well, Bob Fagan is an unusual person. He chose Alaska and chose to study bears in the wild along with his wife for over 20 years. And he had a, a camp on an island offshore Pack Creek near Admiralty Island in uh, southeast Alaska. So when I was working with the National Geographic on animal play, I was able to go up and spend uh, two or three weeks with him at his camp. 
And his wife said to me before we started, she said, now, Bob doesn't like to talk much, so just watch it while you're in the tree with him. So we were in a tree stand, and in Alaska in June, it doesn't get dark. So we were in the tree stand hour after hour after hour. And then one day, a couple of bears, juvenile, sub-adult bears came by, lathered up, playing like crazy, wrestling, you know, paw slapping, and it was gorgeous. And so I said, Bob, why do these bears play? And he looked at me like I was some idiot. Uh, it would be, you know, the the example that came to my mind when I thought about this, would it would be like me sitting with Picasso asking him why he painted. Uh, <laughs> he said, they play because it's fun. And I said, Bob, you know, you got a degree from MIT and Harvard. You're the world's expert on animal play. You've written this magnum opus book on it. Why the hell do the bears play? And he said, these bears play because it prepares them for a changing world, period. So it was, that was quite a moment. That makes sense to me. In my research for my book on the Olympics, I looked up the origin of the word fun as well. And it's uncanny. Originally, it meant to strive or explore. So when we're deeply having fun, it appears we're exploring something. But what would that be? Well, Mark Beckoff, who is a marvelous uh, animal play expert and an evolutionary biologist, has written beautifully about animal play and its nature. And he said animal play, including the highest form of primate play and probably applying to us, is the capacity to explore the possible. And that's part of what play is all about. That's what kids do when they're playing. They're exploring something absolutely that's new to them that's, that opens possibilities through their own imagination. Amazing. Wonderful. Remember years ago, Paul McCartney once wrote a song for Peter and Gordon called uh, World Without Love. What would a world without play look like? Black and white, gray, awful. You know, no movies, no flirtation, no games, no Super Bowl uh, parties, uh, no jocularity, no teasing. Um, you begin to look at how play contributes to mood and to optimism and hope for the future and the ability to persevere, and you see how important it is. So a world without it is a pretty bleak world in my view. Then what do you say to people in the second half of life? Do they need play as much as children do? I think the needs are different, and I don't think they're as urgent, and I don't think the drive in post-middle age is as strong as when the brain is in, in its maximum developmental phases. But if, as I have done, taken thousands of play reviews of middle-aged people, uh, when you really look at a life, middle-aged life, that's devoid of play, you will see uh, the deficits in that life. And they usually are some of what I mentioned earlier, a kind of a uh, bitterness or a lack of optimism, a rigidity in thinking, kind of a retreat into ideology and, and black and white certainty. Play is ambiguous. Play uh, holds paradox 
and allows you to maintain paradox uh, and uh, and not go nuts. Uh, well, uh, if you don't play, maybe there are no paradoxes, but you're really not having the same kind of life. Do you meet people like this? We all do. Workshops? <laughs> we all meet people like this. And what do you say if someone says, why are you teaching people to be trivial? Why are you teaching them to goof off? I don't really get into that because most of the time, uh, by the time I've given the Whitman story, uh, those kinds of folks don't come up and ask questions <laughs> after, after a, a talk. Occasionally they do. And most of the time it's people whose belief systems are sincere but are very, very fixed and who don't like the thought of human beings being connected uh, with an evolutionary timeline to forebears who are other than what we are now. And those folks have a tough time. What's the roots of that? Is that our Puritan work ethic manifesting itself, that there's only work and no play? Yeah, I think it's complex. When I, do, when I t take these individual play reviews and you begin to look at the earliest uh, interactions between parent and child, when there is a lack of joyfulness and trust and warmth, between parent and child, then what you often see is the, the world is perceived as a kind of a battleground instead of a playground. And that has consequences in how you frame your life and how you cope with the world. Is that the opening for you in the business world where so many companies are bringing you in to help them get the edge, to help them become more creative and innovative? It's a little different than that. I think the uh, allowing of one to become in their own personal state of play opens up innovativeness. Okay. Phil, we've talked a lot about play, but one of the things that I think hasn't come up in, in our discussion is that play is fun, it's voluntary, it has a lot of, of uh, benefits, but when a, a playless person begins to experience play, they are transformed by it. It has transformational capabilities, and these are really becoming neuroscientifically measurable. I'm here with Stuart Brown. He's the author of Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. I'm Phil Cousineau. You're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Stuart Brown, author of Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. Stuart spells his name S-T-U-A-R-T. Stuart Brown. 
If you'd like more information on the work of Stuart Brown, you may go to his website, nifplay.org. That's the National Institute for Play. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Phil Cousineau. Stuart, I was very struck by the thought of the great novelist James Missioner that the master of the art of living knows no difference between work and play. Is that the ultimate goal of our life, to have some kind of seamless living where we are playful at what we work at and we work in a, in a gentle mode to be playful with our entire lives? I don't know if it's the ultimate goal, but I think the, the, the enactment of being fully human requires that we have effective play throughout our lifetime. And, you know, there are many, many people that I've interviewed, and one comes to mind right now who I think has mixed work and play beautifully. And I first got acquainted with him when I was a freshman medical student, and he was a recently arrived instructor in physiology at Baylor College of Medicine. His name is Roger Guillemin, G-U-I-L-L-E-M-I-N, wonderful fellow. And he was teaching us physiology, but he was dancing while he taught. And then uh, we got to be friends. He was young enough that he, he hobnobbed with the medical students. And I began to recognize what a, what a smart and genius he was. I prosected in the anatomy course after my freshman year, which means you prepare the dissection for the next day. And we do this at night. And Roger was in the anatomy lab uh, taking brains out of cadavers because he was studying uh, the brain and the physiology of the brain. And we didn't dissect those particular brains as part of our medical school. So Roger had discerned that there was in the pituitary gland an anomaly, that the veins in the pituitary gland were too large to handle the blood flow. And he wanted to figure out why. And so he was in there night after night singing his, his French, singing his French songs. And he ultimately uh, then, then got 35,000 calf brains. And the long story short, he won the Nobel Prize in medicine for discovering releasing factors in which the brain, the hypothalamus portion of the brain, releases substances into the veins that go into the pituitary, and the pituitary then activates all kinds of things like the thyroid gland, the adrenal gland. And so he got the Nobel Prize for that, but he was having a ball. And so, uh, segue, many years later, he's living in La Jolla. I'm living in La Jolla. He's at the Salk Institute. He picks up the phone and he calls me. He says, do I? Come over to my lab. And so I... You know, it's about nine o'clock at night. I, you know, this guy's won the Nobel Prize. He's a retired professor now. I go over to the Salk Institute, and here is this array of glassware and stuff I couldn't make any sense out of. And he has to show me how you go from one end of the glassware to the other and come up with one molecule at the end that has physiologic activity. And I realize I'm in his playground. Work and play, no separation. So in answer to your question, if any of us can intermix our work and our play together as much as possible, that's an ideal, I think, and one to be striven for. And I think it evokes, as it did in Roger, 
our deepest talents. And the idea that you have to separate work from play and only have a playful time on the weekend or on a vacation, sure, those are important times. But to be able to look at your life and say, you know, did I have some play today? You know, was it part of my consciousness? Even if I'm working on an assembly line or have a lousy boss, I can still fantasize what I'd do to the boss if I could, knowing that that's nothing but a playful fantasy. It's still play. So there's a lot of ways that I think we can incorporate play more fully into our lives, and the payoffs are huge. Is this what you mean when you say that play may be the single most important factor in determining our success and happiness? That's a tough one, too, because, you know, if you're born a slave and a sharecropper or something where there's abuse, it's pretty tough. And this doesn't mean that there aren't environments that are not safe, where you're not well-fed, where there is terror, in which case play is lost. So that, that there is a huge component in the world. Uh, Syria at the moment comes to mind, South Sudan, you know, where uh, it's probably pretty darn hard to experience play. So I don't mean to trivialize some of the suffering in the world. As Bowen White, one of our advisors, says, pain doesn't eliminate the pain and suffering in the world. It helps us better cope with it. Or maybe transform it. I've heard blues described as the attempt to transform the permanent sorrow of life. So you think of the origins of blues and, and uh, rhythm and blues in the cotton fields. Slaves transforming their sorrow and their deprivation into some kind of art. Is there... That, that's very well put, uh, Phil. And I don't have a whole lot more to add to what you just said. I think the it takes a certain background in play for us to be able to go there. If you take a severely deprived child that's had a psychotic mother, for example, or has been beaten and abused, it's pretty hard to go there. You've got to, they've got to learn to dance first before they can mix play and work together. But I think it is very possible, even in, in the, uh, you know, if I, what comes to mind is are the 9 11 uh, victims surviving families and the obituaries that were written uh, by the New York Times reporters that collected, you know, some two to 3,000 of these. When you read those obituaries, the assuaging of grief appears to be by the recognition of play memories from the lives of the people who were killed in that tragedy. So I think this is partly how we all cope, maybe partly why it's there, how we all cope with the inevitable losses that are a part of existence. And I think part of the reason it's there is to help us find a way toward optimism and hope in the future, even when things are grim. So it has, it has its, uh, I think, its roots in some very deep survival issues. And, uh, you know, from my standpoint, play is a fundamental survival drive of humanity, without which long-term survival of our species may be at stake. I suppose that 
that brings up the idea of appropriate play. Do you remember the huge cultural debate after Kennedy was assassinated and Pete Rozelle had to decide whether or not we were going to play football on Sunday, a couple of days after. And he thought that the country needed to heal by bringing us together and witnessing people at play. There's also the Bruce Springsteen story of him reading those obituaries in the New York Times, and he saw how many people were uh, memorialized by being fans of his music. So he called the widows of mostly the men who had died in those buildings and said, thank you for um, acknowledging that my music had some role. And then he turned those stories into an album. He mm. played, composed and played music to help the healing of the whole country. Yeah, I, I think that there are deep reasons that play has persisted in, in our existence. And uh, what you've just highlighted certainly is one of them. It's, you know, it's not as frivolous and lighthearted as we often think of play, but I think um, the depths of understanding of play and the lens through which I've been able to look at it means it has multifaceted importances and uh, assuaging grief is one. Can you talk also about your belief in the need to integrate work and play on a deeper level? Some people will say, I'll wait till I play till the weekend, or I'll wait till I play until after retirement. Is there a way we can integrate play into everyday life? Well, I think part of the breadth of this program will be to, I hope, uh, to the listener to take a look at their own lives and see what the openness is within the reality of their existence to find play. And most of us can do this by going back and back into our childhoods when there was this pristine moment or moments when play was pure and feel that again and then link that to life today as best we can. And that tends to work. That tends to bring some joy and some hope into and some integration of play hour by hour into our existence. What's the future of play? Well, I think because the science is so solid, it's flooding into neuroscience and the clinical sciences. I think the recognition of play's necessity in the educational world, for example, uh, will allow more talent and more innovation to come forth in a culture that really needs it. I think if you look at parenting, uh, dolphin parenting works better than tiger parenting, in my view. Uh, the, the recognition of allowing a child to play freely early and identifying those talents that come spontaneously out of the child is a, way of, a fresh way of looking at parenting instead of imposing something on the child. So there are lots and lots of implications. Thank you, Dr. Stuart Brown, for such a playful conversation. My guest has been Stuart Brown, author of Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. That's Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, Brown. If you'd like more information on his work, you may go to his website, nifplay.org. That's the National Institute for Play.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
I'm Phil Cousineau. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3496. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.